You're listening to a podcast from JNNP. Welcome to the JNNP podcast. I'm Harriet Vickers. This month, we look at the future of glioblastoma therapy. Here's Peter Wonka, JNNP Associate Editor, talking to Clark Chen, Director of Clinical Neuro-Oncology at Harvard Medical School, about key principles which are driving the formulation of new treatments. My first question would be, we treat glioblastoma for 40, 50 years with standard treatment, which hasn't been successful. All we ever got is a couple of weeks now, maybe two months extension with the latest edition of Temodar. So it's very obvious we need biological treatments because neither surgery, nor radiation, nor chemotherapy are the real answer to the biological problem, which is awfully difficult. So you got seven new concepts out there. What makes you think that this will really change the treatment of glioblastoma? I I think that we're so focused on specific examples of mechanisms, and there's not enough focus that's paid into understanding the fundamental laws, without which we can't design drugs to treat this devastating disease. And so the intent of this article is really to bring us back to the fundamentals and try to make sense of the vast amount of information and conceptualize them into basic concepts and and, and hopefully eventually laws or corollaries that we could use to design rational therapy. So you're absolutely right. The past 40 years has yielded maybe one to two months of, on average, expansion of survival. On the other hand, if you look at one of the concepts that's put forth is that what, what we're missing out in the past 40 years is that this glioblastoma disease is not one disease. And in fact, this is many diseases folded into one. Once we understand that by looking at subgroups of patients who are afflicted with different types of glioblastoma, what you're seeing is that a subset of these patients in a very recent paper are now surviving five years or more. Now, that's about 10% of the patients. The problem here right now is figuring out who these patients are and who could benefit from therapy a priori, because the other 90% of the patient really should be subjected to clinical trials that are designed to test the various concepts that are proposed in this this, uh, article. That would be also the clinical message I can distill out of this, and it goes right into health economics that uh, if we can identify these long-term survivors which respond to Temodar uh, differently than the others based on the individual tumor biology, we can actually save tons of money not spending all the healthcare uh, incentives on drugs, which we know will not work anyway. So I think that's very important. So there's no immediate clinical impact, but a very large long-term clinical impact. I, I would actually argue that there is immediate clinical impact in that when we treat patients with chemotherapy, surgery, and radiation, there are unintended consequences to each modality. You know, at the end of the day, everything that you and I as neurosurgeons and oncologists do harbor harm. And we have to justify that harm by a calculated attempt at benefit. If we can understand the benefit harm calculation in a rational way, we could really spare patients from the unintentional harms. And so I would argue, absolutely, in terms of healthcare, this will have a tremendous impact. But immediately, if I can look at the patient in the eye and tell them, you know, 
I know with some certainty that you won't benefit from this therapy and that you're better off going into a clinical trial, you know, I, I think we, we have a, a dramatic and immediate impact on the patient. Equally importantly, I think that glioblastoma is a relatively rare disease, you know, compared to something like breast cancer or colon cancer. What that means is the pool of patients from which you could test the various therapies are somewhat limited. Again, by understanding who would not benefit from the sort of immediate therapy of temidar radiation, we could expand the number of patients who could go into the clinical trials, which is really our hope in the future of, of beating this disease. I would completely agree with that, except uh, the negative predictability uh i.e. to predict with what certainty patients will not respond from Temodar, even given the uh, MGMT data, which is still not completely panned out. I wouldn't make a very hard statement to the individual patient, but overall, of course, that that's what we all strive for. Absolutely. You're right. We're nowhere close to the practical reality of prediction, but I think that has to be a major area of focus in our future investigations. Yeah, Absolutely. The other question is all these wonderful molecular concepts, which we have seen so many in the past, including the tremendous hype on gene therapy, etc., have basically not come to fruition. And one of the things, which is my personal hobby, is because we have fantastic targets, but very poor delivery techniques. Absolutely. I fully agree. If we look at the fundamental challenges in brain cancer therapy, it falls into two distinct categories. One is how does the cell, the tumor cell, respond and the microenvironment respond as a result of therapy? Two is how to get the therapies there. And the blood-brain barrier is a major challenge in that, you know, less than 1% of all drugs is estimated to harbor the property of, of crossing the blood-brain barrier. And so there's been a tremendous amount of work in terms of trying to improve and modify drugs to get to the brain. And you're absolutely right. For the most part, these efforts have not been productive uh, or, or translated into clinical medicine. If I had to expand on one concept in this article, it would be some form of surgical delivery of the agent. Uh, the reason is, you know, for a neurosurgeon, for you and me, there is no blood-brain barrier. We are right there during surgery. Yeah. And if we can use that opportunity for drug delivery, it would be wonderful. The problem is, so far, everything that we've tried are either non-rational or poorly thought out. I mean, consider the gliadel wafer. Here, you're implanting a wafer, and you hope that the diffusion of the drug could get to the tumor. We know for a fact that diffusion doesn't occur more than 3 millimeters, or at least 5 millimeters at most, from the site of implant. We also know for a fact that the tumors will spread beyond two centimeters beyond the tumor margin that we can visualize. So that concept is non-rational. The other approach is one of convection. And here you're asking by you know, injecting fluid under pressure to get the drug into the tumor. The problem is the interstitial pressure of the tumor is greater than the normal tissue, and we know that fluids will flow in the pathway of least resistance which means most of the drugs that you inject through convection is going to end up in normal brain or in CSF space. And I, you know, I know you're an expert in this field as well, and I'd love to hear your thoughts on the matter. 
Yeah, I, I think uh, the Gliadel the story is the wonderful paradigm for neurosurgery. Um, you're right, diffusion is excessively slow. It's a couple of millimeters. And what people didn't take into consideration is that the extracellular space half-life for nitrosoeurus is probably in the range of 10 seconds or something. And then it's pharmacologically no more dynamic. The other thing I think is we are targeting something we can't really see because we're targeting contrast enhancement on an MRI scan, which has nothing to do with the tumor. It's just the neovascularization of the tumor, and the tumor can spread indeed centimeters beyond. So I think the interesting concept, which several people are going after now, is to look at molecular imaging, which actually doesn't show an epiphenomenon like contrast, increased permeability, but actual hypermetabolism, uh, different size of the extracellular space reflected by quantitative ADC maps, or maybe very, very interesting amino acid metabolism to use that to actually target the tumor volume. And, and actually, our colleagues from radiation oncology, uh, they have some new trials on where they actually don't target from the MR scan anymore, but target from a PET scan fused to the MR scan, which shows real tumor cell activity. And in the future, we can probably even target, uh, which theoretically we can do already in models, hypoxic areas, which are totally different from normoxic areas in the tumor, etc. So we will do biological imaging and get rid of the morphological imaging, which has been so deceiving in the past, I think. I agree, but I have to confess, while I realize radiation will be a critical portion of our treatment, those escalation studies at the MGH and elsewhere where they go beyond 90, you know, gray and still see tumor within the 90 gray volume makes me think that it's not just a visualization, but again, fundamentally understanding what the tumor is doing and, and how it's responding to the therapy. I'm a firm believer that a therapy that's efficacious at one point in the tumor's lifespan will become completely a placebo at another time point. Because the tumor is a living entity that responds and adapts to the microenvironment and the chemotherapy, and that once it adapts, your chemotherapy is no more, it's doing no more than harming the patient. And so, once again, understanding these physiologic changes in the tumor in real time is equally important as just getting the drug or the radiation there. So, for instance, if the tumor has evolved to a point where it's no longer responding to radiation, then it doesn't make sense to re-radiate. Or if you know a priori, this tumor is not one that's likely to respond to standard, you know, 60-gray um, regimen, then it doesn't make sense to add the radiation to it for you're harming patient much more than you're helping the patient. So I think these are all pieces of the pie that needs to be put together. And at the end, we hope that biologic investigations will give us fundamental laws, very much like physical laws that we could employ the problem really is that we, we don't have that right now. I totally agree. I think to paint a little picture, our current radiation approaches probably uh, are not really different from uh, carpet bombing, whereas uh, the biological approaches are really targeted cruise missiles, uh, which come with more efficacy and uh, less side effects. Okay, that's all I have. Well, again, thank you very much for the opportunity to participate in the podcast. I'm particularly excited to, as I put this article together, to see that there are fundamental concepts that are coming together. You know, I'm particularly excited about the discovery of, for example, microRNAs and how stable they are in the serum and 
how stable they are in the CSF, and the fact that by having certain microRNAs in blood and serum or CSF, we could um, extrapolate the physiology of the tumor. I'm very excited about the recent discovery that there are subsets of cells within the tumor that actually maintains the tumor. The implication there is we, we need a, a combination therapy that will be targeted to each subset of the cells. I'm fascinated by how we're beginning to understand how they respond to DNA damaging agents and the discovery that certain tumors may harbor defects in these responses that we could exploit. It is my sincere hope that this article will stimulate sort of thinking on a grander level that will you know, help us and guide uh, therapy. It is quite disheartening sometimes when you read biological papers in various journals there are not insignificant proportion of times where co the data are conflicting just because a cell lines change or the models changed. And I think we need to go beyond that and really think about why it is that there are changes between models and dif different investigators and papers. Only by understanding those discrepancies can we eventually arrive at these laws that, that we hope will dictate a rational therapy. And uh, I look forward to hearing uh, other viewers' comments in terms of the article. Okay, thank you so much. That was Peter Wonka talking to Clark Chen. And Dr. Chen's review is now up on jnmp.bmj.com. Thanks for joining us for this edition. Come back next month for more of the latest in neurology, neurosurgery and psychiatry. For more information about this programme and other BMJ Group podcasts, please visit bmj.com.